morning comes again from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, reading just uh, two verses of this chapter. If you have a, a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 810. We continue in our series, Plagiarizing Jesus, uh, working our way through this greatest sermon that was ever preached by Jesus himself some 2,000 years ago. And This week we come to verse 31 and verse 32, which deals with issues of marriage and divorce. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Jesus says to his first disciples and to us, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This also is the word of the Lord. Let's stand together. Let's pray together. Father, we again thank you for your word which speaks to us with great clarity, but also with great compassion. And we pray that as we examine this text together just now, you would come and you would be our teacher, and that you would create in us an insight and wisdom for life, but also a greater appreciation for Christ and how he has so loved us, his bride. These things we pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Please be seated. So last week we get sex and lust, and this week we get marriage, divorce, remarriage. We are going out of the frying pan straight into the fire, and this is a a tough text for us to work through. And my aim this morning is to speak as Christ always spoke, with compassionate clarity. Compassion because there is not a person in this room who has not been touched by these issues. Perhaps you are single and unhappily so and struggling with loneliness. Perhaps you are married and unhappily so and enduring the normal strain of marriage. Perhaps you are divorced and you wish you were not divorced and you are working through the heartache of that betrayal. Perhaps you're divorced of your own doing and you are working through the shame and regret of that. Perhaps you are remarried and figuring out the complications of blending a new life and a new family. Perhaps you are widowed and miss the the opportunities and friendships that you had. Not a person in this room has been untouched by issues of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Certainly I know my own family, these these issues are are, are real and, and felt issues. So we want to speak with compassion, but we also want to speak with great clarity. Why? Because there is so much confusion in our day when it comes to these issues. What is marriage? What constitutes marriage? What is divorce? What constitutes a biblical divorce? Under what circumstances might someone go and remarry? There is so much fuzzy thinking in our world when it comes to these issues. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take this text as as a launching point to look at the Bible's larger teaching on uh, these issues. And we're going to have 10 points. Are you ready? 10 affirmations that we believe to be true about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So let's work our way through these together. The first four affirmations relate to marriage, and the first one is simply this, that marriage is a divinely ordained 
institution. Marriage is a divinely ordained institution. Marriage is not something that our culture came up with. It is not a societal invention, but it was God's idea. It was God's invention, and he has given marriage as a good gift to us. And so it is only with him that we are able to work it out with joy in our lives. First, we must follow his design. He tells us back in Genesis that he is giving one man to one woman, that they might become one flesh, a man and woman designed to perfectly correspond. Biblically understood, homosexual marriage is, is unbiblical. Polygamous marriage is unbiblical. Anything else you might see on TLC is also probably <laughs> unbiblical. Um, these issues are culturally controversial, but they are, they're biblically almost bland. They're biblically not up for debate. There's really no dispute when it comes to the Scripture's teaching on these issues. One man designed for one woman. Not only following his design, but also following his instructions. The Bible is full of great wisdom as to how we might love our spouse, how we might serve them well. And when we stray from this instruction, it goes poorly for us. Marriage is a divinely ordained institution, and so it is only with God that we can work it out with joy. That's principle number one. Affirmation number two is, again, very simply this, that that marriage is a calling. Marriage is a calling. What does this mean? I mean, many of us are are called to be married, that the Lord has ordained for our lives that we will live in this intimate one-man, one-woman relationship. But others are called, Jesus tells tells us in, in Matthew 19, that others are called to singleness for the sake of the kingdom. Some are called to marriage, some are called to singleness. Neither calling is superior, neither calling is uh, preferential according to the scriptures. And so we must not idolize marriage as if it is the quote-unquote normal state of life. Singles must not idolize marriage and think that if they uh, are unable to marry that they have uh, somehow missed out on God's best for their lives. Likewise, those of us who are married ought not idolize marriage and sort of imply to singles that there is something lacking in their life because of their status. Rather, marriage is a calling, and we're told in 1 Corinthians that each person should lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called them. So it's a divinely ordained institution, but it's also a calling for some, but not for all. Third thing that the scriptures make very clear is when it comes to what marriage is, what is marriage in its very essence? Marriage is a covenant of companionship. Marriage is a covenant of companionship. At its very essence, that's what marriage is. Now, lots of things come along with marriage. You might have uh, children. You might have uh, do certain things together as a couple. You might have a certain kind of family lifestyle. But none of those things are at the very essence of what a marriage is by definition. By definition, marriage is a covenant of companionship. We reflected upon this idea of covenant last week, and we saw that a covenant is when two parties bind themselves together in whole life across the board, deep personal relational commitment. They promise themselves to each other completely and exclusively, physically, emotionally, intellectually, entirely. And when the Lord binds these one flesh uh, uh, relationships together, it's it's a profoundly powerful thing. 
It's interesting as you look back on the Old Testament and you think of the Shema, which is this great verse in Deuteronomy that says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This idea that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God. Well, this same term is used in Genesis to describe the one flesh relationship that exists between husband and wife. The covenant they enter into is so profound that they are mysteriously bound. In the same way that the Trinity mysteriously exists as one, so man and woman entering into covenant together mysteriously become one flesh. The illustration often given is that it is like taking two sheets of paper and and gluing them together. And once you've let that glue set, there is no way for you to separate them again. And if you do, you, you tear both and cause destruction to both. That once joined, it is impossible to separate them neatly again. There is a deep and profound spiritual mystery about the one flesh covenant that we enter into, indescribably intimate relationship. It is also, though, a covenant of of companionship. So when you enter into this covenant, what what are you promising to do? What what is it that you were saying you will do? And the Bible's answer is you're promising to be their companion. Uh, Back in Genesis 2, 18, in the perfection of the Garden of Eden, the Lord pronounces the first malediction, the first bad word, and says it is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for him to be alone. And so as the solution to solve this problem of of human loneliness, he creates Eve, also in his own image and likeness, saying, I will make a helper fit for him. A great verse. Let's just focus on two of those words. First of all, the word helper is such a, a great biblical word because to our ears, to the English translation, it can sometimes come across as, as a little bit weak, as if the wife's role is to kind of follow her husband around and just help him out with whatever he needs and fix his breakfast and do, do whatever he might require of her. This term helper is used of one other person in the Bible. You know who that person is? God himself. That God is the helper of Israel. He is the one who empowers them and, and, and enables them to be all that he has intended for them to be. And so this Hebrew word is a, is a powerful word, more akin to empowerer than to some weak, servile helper. It is this idea that God saw man and recognized that he could not flourish and could not be all that humanity had intended to be were it not for the creation of woman. And that in combination together, they might cause each other to flourish. That's why he says a helper fit him. It is this idea of being the one who, who corresponds to you, the one who brings a sense of meaning and intelligibility to your life, the one without whom you couldn't really imagine uh, your existence. And so we have this indescribably intimate relationship that's designed for mutual flourishing, marriage as a covenant of companionship. Fourth principle and the final one of marriage is this, that marriage displays God's love for the world. In creation, marriage is a covenant of companionship, and in redemption, marriage displays God's love for the world. We see this many places in Scripture, but particularly and famously in Ephesians chapter 5. In verses 21 and following, we get this great description of an intimate love relationship between a husband 
and a wife. This exalted romantic language about intimacy that will be alive in this love relationship. And then in verse 32 of that chapter, Paul says, now listen, all that I've said about intimacy is true about a husband and a wife, but what I'm really talking about, what it really points toward is the intimacy that exists between Christ and his church. In other words, he's saying this most profound relationship in all of human existence, this profound covenant of companionship, this one flesh intimacy is just a picture. It's just an illustration. It's just a dim echo of true love, the love that exists between Jesus and his people. And so our marriages are to reflect that reality. And husbands are called in that passage to die to themselves on a day-by-day basis as Christ has died for the church. Die to themselves so that their wives might flourish. That might mean something great and grand, like actually laying down your life for your spouse. Or it might mean that on a Saturday night, you watch three hours of what not to wear finale. (laughs) Sure, honey, I I didn't want to watch the Clemson game. Yeah, let's watch what not to wear, you know? Um, We die to ourselves in ways large and small and everything in between. Not considering ourselves to be the priority in our household, but seeking the, be- the welfare and flourishing of our, of our spouse and of our children. Likewise, uh, the wife lives for her husband as Christ lived for the church. Think of how the church responds to Christ. She looks at him and she is so drawn to him. She is so desirous of intimate relationship with him that she's prepared to do whatever it is to, uh, to, to love him well as he has so loved us. And so a, a wife does the same. Living for her husband as the church lives for Christ. And as we do this, we are to display God's love for the world. Our marriages are to be a living, walking, talking, breathing, tangible, fleshy illustration of how Christ loves his church and the church loves Christ. Four principles, four affirmations then on marriage. The next three get into the text and others related to it and focus on divorce. Three principles for you on divorce. The first one is this, that divorce is always serious, but it's not always sinful. Divorce is always serious, but it's not always sinful. The illustration that's often used of this is if you think of an amputation. Divorce is like an amputation, which means that um, it's always serious. It's never a good thing to have to amputate a finger or even a limb. It's never a good thing. And if we get to that stage, then something has gone horribly wrong. There has been some terrible accident. There has been some infection. It is, it is, it is, it is a serious matter to amputate a limb. But sometimes it's necessary. It's not always simple. And so it is with divorce. Sometimes, like an amputation, it is necessary to save life. It is necessary to preserve life that we go ahead and take this most severe and drastic of action. But we never do so lightly. We never do so without it being the final measure necessary. Imagine a doctor. You come into a doctor and you say, you know, my hand's been bothering me. And he says, well, let's chop it off. You know? Um, soon for malpractice. Uh, divorce is, is serious. Not always sinful, but, but always serious. And, and no one knows that better than those of you who have walked through it. 
Supposing your divorce was biblical, and we'll get to that in a minute, you still know that it was a painful, hard, difficult experience. So divorce, not always serious, not always sinful. There are biblical grounds for divorce. What are those grounds? Well, biblically understood, there are two. Biblically understood, divorce is permitted, but never required, on the grounds of adultery or desertion. Divorce is permitted but never required on the grounds of adultery or desertion. What do I mean by this? First of all, divorce is sometimes biblically permitted, but it is never required. And that's an important thing for us to remember, that it is not like in these instances uh, you must always get divorced. No, the principles of the gospel tell us that reconciliation is always our goal. No matter what has happened in life, our goal is to seek forgiveness and to seek reconciliation. That is the the primary objective when it comes to marital strife. But it is under certain circumstances permitted. What are these circumstances? First of all, adultery, like we see here in our text, Matthew 5, verse 32, divorcing a wife from the grounds of uh, sexual immorality. Greek term here is the term pornea, which will sound similar to your ears where we get our term pornography, and it's really used to describe a, a wide variety of sexual sin. Here it's referring specifically to those external acts that break the one flesh relationship. The one flesh covenant that has been established in marriage. Those external sexual acts that would, that would break that one flesh relationship. We'll get into more details in a few moments. At the second biblical reason that we see for divorce comes from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, look at verses 12 through 16 uh, when you have the time. And we see this idea that a divorce is, is biblically permissible on the grounds of, of desertion. When one spouse or the other forsakes their marriage vows by abandoning their spouse. Again, it is external sin that breaks uh, this one flesh relationship. So, divorce, permitted but not required on the grounds of adultery or desertion. Seventh principle uh, gets into the the details or the weeds, perhaps, of the sixth principle. And the seventh principle is this, that these grounds, the grounds for for divorce, are established in the church. The grounds for divorce are established in the context of the church. What do we mean by this? Well, exactly what constitutes adultery or desertion is not a thing that can be decided in isolation. It is not a thing that you can self proclaim. You would never amputate an arm without consulting a doctor, and in the same way we don't declare we have grounds for divorce without consulting the church. And Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20 makes profoundly clear, inarguably clear, that when there is a tension between us that cannot be resolved, a difficulty that between us that, that we can't work out, we're to take that issue to the church, that God has given the church to you in order that it might provide a protective leadership for you. God has given the church to you that it might provide a protective leadership for you. And so the grounds of divorce are established in the context of the church. Real life, my life, your life, all of our lives, and especially life when it comes to adultery and desertion, is messy. So what constitutes adultery? Well, on one level, it might be clear. Uh, your spouse runs off and has a full-fledged affair with another person. Clear enough. 
In other cases, we would see that there's been an, an, an objective equivalent of that. They might not have had a full sexual uh, intimacy or sexual intercourse with that other person, but they have done all else. Uh, and the Bible would not encourage us to see that as some loophole that might uh, mean that their actions were permissible. But what about an emotional affair? What about... Uh, a prolonged and deep addiction to pornography. Might this cause grounds for adultery, for divorce? So much depends on the circumstances, so much depends on the details that the grounds are to be established in the context of the church in life-on-life interaction with these issues. When it comes to desertion, the same thing could be said. Okay, it's clear. If someone literally leaves, they have deserted, they have abandoned. But again, there are some objective equivalents that you can desert your spouse, you can forsake your vows while physically remaining present in the home. For example, a man who beats his wife or a man who abuses one of his children we would historically have, have no problem with understanding that to be a desertion of the covenant vows. But again, what about more complicated situations? What about emotional neglect or financial neglect? At what point do these things become a desertion that might grant a divorce? The point is that God has given the church to you to care for you by providing a protective leadership to wrestle through the messiness of life with you. What do we do? Five things. First, we try and find out the full story. We try and find out the full story. We come alongside you. We hear your side. We hear the other side. We hear the sides of the witnesses. We try and find out what's really been happening. The second thing we do, and this is where the, the difficulty and wisdom comes, is we seek to determine the nature or the quality of the offense. We use prayer, we use the Bible, we use wisdom, we use counsel to see if what has taken place has in fact destroyed that one flesh relationship. See, the Bible does recognize that there are degrees of sin. Now, we need to be careful with this. It doesn't recognize it so that sort of permit the lesser ones. But it does recognize that, that some, some sins are, are more heinous than others. And our larger catechism gives such a long, detailed answer, it's almost humorous to me, as to how you might determine which sins are more serious than others. It says, If it be against the express letter of the law, break many commandments, contain in it many sins, if not only conceived in the heart, but also breaking forth into words and actions. If it scandalizes many and admits of no reparation, if it's a sin against The means, mercies, judgments, light of nature, conviction of conscience, public or private admonitions, censors of the church, civil punishments. If it is against our prayers, our purposes, our vows, our covenants, and our engagements to men or to God, and then a great list. If it is done deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, impudently, boastingly, maliciously, frequently, obstinately, with delight, continuance, or relapsing after repentance. What a great answer. Um, what's the answer trying to get at? It's trying to say, look, there are some sins that are more serious than others. And there are ways at at getting at that. For example, frequency. Was this a thing that was an ongoing thing, or was this a one-off? Another example it gives is done with delight. Is this a sin that was committed and there's great regret, or is it a sin that's committed and, and, and celebrated? We do our best to determine the nature and quality of the offense to see if that one flesh relationship has been broken. Thirdly, always... We pursue reconciliation. That the biblical ideal is reconciliation. 
mutual forgiveness and repentance. Fourthly, though, if reconciliation is impossible and there are biblical grounds, then we would approve a divorce. And fifthly, we would continue to care for the family and all involved to the very best of our ability. This is why we have divorce care. This is why we have divorce care for kids because we know that this is a real life issue in our church and we see this with, don't want to attach any stigma to those who are struggling with these issues. We want to come alongside and love them. The heart of the church is to provide two things. First, protective leadership from an unbiblical divorce. If you ought not to be divorced, we want to help you not to make this tragic mistake. But secondly, also to protect you with a biblical divorce. If you ought to get divorced because your husband has been so unfaithful or so abusive or uh, the wife has been the same, then we want to come alongside and, and support you in those circumstances. The seventh principle, the grounds for divorce are established in the context of the church. Eighth, ninth, and tenth affirmations really deal with remarriage. And let's look at these quite quickly. The first one is this, that if the divorce was permissible, if the divorce was appropriate, then remarriage is also permissible and appropriate. A quick sort of side note here, and that is to say that, first of all, for those of you who have been widowed, the Bible is very clear that you are free to remarry without any guilt on your conscience What? Soever. Um, you may choose not to, and that is, that is also fine. But those who have suffered at the death of a spouse are, are always free to remarry. But also, the innocent party in a divorce is free to remarry. 1 Corinthians 7, 15, verses 27 and 28 make this very clear. Now, of course, in marriage, there is no innocent party in one sense. We're all guilty most of the time. When I say innocent party, I'm really referring to the party who didn't break that one flesh relationship. So the one who didn't have the affair, the one who didn't desert their spouse, is free to remarry. Now, we would encourage you to be wise, and we would encourage you to be slow, and we would encourage you to be patient about that process, but the principle is clear that those who are innocent are free to remarry. If divorce was permissible, remarriage is permissible. Hard truth the Bible is also very clear on. And number nine, if divorce was impermissible, improper, then remarriage is also impermissible. It is also biblically improper. 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, I'll read it to you, make clear that the offending party is to remain single and pursue reconciliation. Paul says, To the married I give this charge. The wife should not separate divorce from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. And likewise, the husband should not divorce his wife. In other words, vice versa. We ought not to divorce unbiblically. And if we have, then we ought to remain single or pursue remarriage. Now, uh, pursue reconciliation. If reconciliation is impossible, either because uh, the one you betrayed remarries or even dies, then remarriage might become possible again. Much would depend on on a conversation and, and the details of the messiness of life. Likewise, Jesus makes the point uh, here in Matthew 5.32 that uh, since it is wrong for an improperly divorced person to remarry, it is also wrong to marry an improperly divorced person. You might have been single uh, and you may have met this person, but if they have an unbiblical divorce, Jesus would be clear that to marry them would make you an adulterer. Matthew 
32. These are really hard truths. These are really hard truths. I, I don't take delight in um, reflecting on together. But what they do is they, they point us toward the seriousness of sin. Toward the, the destructive nature of sin. All sin is, can be forgiven full and free by Jesus Christ. But the consequences of some sin remains in our lives. The implications of past actions sometimes have ongoing consequences for us. And here we have one of those. If divorce was impermissible, then remarriage is also impermissible. Number 10, and finally, if you are married, whether permissibly or impermissibly, you should stay married. You know, you say, okay, great. I wish you told me that two years ago, because here I am, right? What do you want me to do? And the Bible says, if you are married, whatever the circumstances of your marriage, you ought to stay married. And the refrain of 1 Corinthians 7, you see it in verses 17, 20, and 24, is remain as you are. In other words, don't multiply past sin by thinking that present sin is going to fix it. Don't try and redeem a past divorce by getting a new divorce. Um, Remain as you are. Yes, repent. Possibly even go and speak to your ex-spouse. Yes, make any amends that are necessary and meet obligations that you may have, children or otherwise, from a previous marriage. But know that you are biblically free to push on in your current marriage, to pursue faithfulness in it, to love one another well, to make the most of it, to enjoy each other, to make this a fresh start in your life. If married, stay married. It's our tenth and final principle. Now, God has given us these principles to guide our thinking, but he's also told us the spirit in which we are to apply them. And let me close with some thoughts on this. He's told us what to think, but he's also told us how to think. And how we think, as always, centers on and revolves around the gospel. We don't take these principles and apply them in a kind of mechanical way. We, we apply them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how we think. Consider one example of this in the Old Testament story, a true narrative, historical account of Hosea. You remember Hosea? God appears to him one day and he says, Hosea, you need to sit down because I have some big news for you. Um, you've been single all your life and the time for marriage has come. And Hosea thinks, sweet, this is great. I've been looking forward to this day. Finally, I will have a spouse and I will be known and I will know her and we can start a family and we'll build a life together. And then uh, God continues, uh, your mission, should you choose to accept it, Hosea 1 verse 2, quoting to keep myself out of trouble, go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. He says, Hosea, go and find a prostitute and marry her. And the two of you will become a picture of my relationship with my unfaithful people. You will be a living illustration of of my relationship with my unfaithful people. You can imagine Hosea's face falling and his dreams falling with it. You know, he's been a righteous man his entire life. He's avoided women like that his entire life. And now he's, you know, what are the neighbors going to think? You know, what is my mom going to say when she finds out about, about this one? How am I going to tell my friends? But off he goes 
at God's command. And he goes down into that seedy part of town that can only be described as depraved. And he sees a block ahead that the girls are on the curb patrolling, prowling for business. And he winds down his window and he asks for Gomer, the name of the prostitute who is to be his wife, a woman in horrible circumstances with a horrible name, Gomer. Um, And uh, he's pointed in her direction and he, he pulls forward and she climbs in and they drive home. And then Hosea deals tenderly with her. Tenderly with her. He gives her food and drink. He provides her with special oil that she might uh, clean up and be refreshed. He presents her with, with gifts, silver and gold, that she might feel truly at home. Uh, time goes by. Gomer begins to look healthier they adjust to married life and then God shows up again and this time he says okay Hosea okay Gomer it's time for children you're going to have two boys you're going to have a girl sandwiched in between Uh, the only thing is that their names are going to be given by me uh, to again represent the unfaithfulness of my people so you're to call the first child Jezreel which means God scatters because that's what my people deserve and you're to call the second child, your daughter, Lo Ruhama, which means not loved, because my people don't deserve to be loved. And you're to call the third child, Lo Ami, which means not my people, because my people don't deserve to be my people anymore. They also will be an illustration of my relationship with my unfaithful people. Not long after the third child arrives, things start to go a little bit wrong in at the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. He starts to notice that she has been wearing some of her own clothes and staying out late at night, and he makes a few calls and finds out that his worst fears have, in fact, been confirmed, that she has slid back into her old way of life, and she has slid back into bed with other men. The spirit of prostitution, Hosea 5.4, is still in her heart. The adulterous spark, Hosea 7.4, has become a fire that needs no attending. She has forgotten about her husband. Hosea describes it in chapter 6, verse 4, that her love is like the morning mist, uh, like the early dew that disappears. And we read that Gomer, in this new way of life, uh, completely forgets about Hosea and that her life descends further into ruin. At first, there's excitement in the air as she's wined and dined at the best restaurants, but then slowly her previous clients get get bored of her again and she slides back down at the pecking order until she finds herself selling her body to a pimp that she will have somewhere to sleep when her night's work is done. And then God appears to Hosea again. And I don't know what Hosea is thinking this time, because the first time and the second time haven't brought good news. So maybe he's thinking, is this some more heavy news? Or maybe I'm going to get an explanation. Maybe I'm going to get some understanding into what's going on here. And the Lord says, Hosea 3.1, Go again, love the woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Go hunt Gomer down and take her back as your wife. Why? Because the two of you are a living illustration of my relationship with my unfaithful people. And so off Hosea goes. He goes back into that part of town that he's only been on once before, and he goes and he knocks on the door of the man who owns her, and though the man cares nothing for her, he sees a a business opportunity, and so he negotiates a a pretty price for Gomer, which Hosea is prepared to pay, and Hosea takes her home again. And his response, chapter 3, verse 3, you belong to me and I belong to you, and that's 
how it's going to be. And God tells us this story, this historical narrative, these events which truly happened, to emphasize that this is how he deals with us. That he takes a people who have rejected him and he deals kindly with us, providing for our every needs. And then he pursues us when we wander away again, buying us back, not with money, not with produce, but with, with body and blood, that we might be his and he might be ours. And then he speaks tenderly to us. And he says, your name is Jezreel. You deserve to be scattered but I've planted you in the land. Your name is Loruhma. You don't deserve to be loved, but I have a seal of my love upon you. Your love is Loami because you don't deserve to be my people, but I have adopted you as sons. And it's this gospel that tells us we are Gomer. We are the adulterous people. Our own sin has caused us to be unfaithful in a thousand ways, and God has dealt kindly with us. And those who know their spiritual adultery deal with issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage very differently. We deal, firstly, with compassion, because we know that all involved are no different to us, and that our own sin has been met by the pursuing God of grace. And so we are going to involve ourselves in these situations with pursuing grace. We also deal with clarity, recognizing those things that are true, those things that are healthy, those things that are destructive, and pursuing all that is good and beautiful. And I want to encourage you this morning that wherever you are, this gospel is enough. If you're single, this gospel is enough to trust God's plan with your life. If you're married and unhappily so, this gospel is enough to uh, enable you to move forward with a, a healthier pattern and move into a beautiful marriage. Countless couples in our congregation will testify to the work the Lord has done in their marriages. If you're divorced and wish you weren't, then the Lord tells us that this gospel is enough to, to heal those hearts. If you're divorced through your own fault, then this gospel is enough to forgive your sins. And if you're remarried, rightly or wrongly, the gospel is enough to make this marriage work. 1 Corinthians seven seventeen. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the compassion and the clarity of your word. And we are a people who need both. We are a people who need our sins forgiven. We are an unfaithful people, not deserving of your presence, provision, protection, or love and yet lavished with all of the above. And, and we thank you for dealing with us so graciously. But Lord, we're also people in need of clarity. We're people in need of, of guidance. We want to be able to think clearly and biblically and uh, think your thoughts when it comes to these issues of marriage and divorce and remarriage that are so, so prevalent and so confused in our culture and in our day. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be a people who hold on to both the clarity and the compassion that seeing this picture of how you have dealt with us, we would likewise turn and deal with others. 
to your honor and to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.